My intention tonight is to take you all the way through chapter 7. That's a number of verses. And we'll see how it goes, but I figure if Stephen can preach it all in one chapter, so can I. But we're going to do our best to walk it through, and I am intentional in this. I prayed about this, and in studying it through, there's a lot here. It's an amazing, amazing chapter in the Scriptures. But the fact that Stephen did give it all at once, I want you to have the context from beginning to end. So we're going to attempt to do that tonight. If you would pray with me, we'll ask the Lord to bless this study. Father, we are honored to be here. Lord, I can honestly say there's nowhere else I'd rather be than with my brothers and sisters worshiping you and pouring over your word. And so I ask tonight that you will bless this time. Bless it, Lord, to your purposes. Bless it to your will. Father, empower us through these things to be witnesses of yours. As we have continued to watch the church just be the church to which you've called us, the church that you designed, the church that that you built, Lord, we just pray that we would walk out these things as Les already prayed, just as you empowered the first century church, so you would empower what I believe to be the last century church. Just as you strengthened them, Lord, would you strengthen us. Just as you were glorified in and through your church in the first century, so, Lord, would you be glorified in and through your church in the last century. Father, we need your help because we realize the task before us is still huge. So pour out your spirit tonight. Give us insight and understanding. Teach us, Lord, and help us trust you more as your spirit teaches us in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll pick it up in verse 8, actually, of chapter 6. That's where we left off on Sunday. Before we do that, I want to remind you, if you haven't already seen this, realize this, that the book of Acts is a book of firsts. It's a book of firsts. It begins with the end of the first coming of Jesus. As we see Him there in chapter 1, we see His ascension, final instructions to, to the boys before He ascends. We see then the first baptism of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. Along with the first sermon of the church there in chapter 2. We see the first realization of koinonia, real koinonia, true fellowship in the church. We see that happening in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. We see the first opposition to the church in chapters 3 and 4. And we also get to witness the first response of the church to that opposition. We see the first discipline in the church. You recall the story now of Ananias and Sapphira. The first purification, sanctification, if you will, of the church that takes place in Acts chapter 5. We see and witness and studied on Sunday the first organization of the church. First time they had to sit down and actually think through what they were doing. Realize there's a lot of needs here and a lot of people needing serving. And so beginning with the widow's food distribution program, they begin to organize a bit, call out those seven men who would then take charge of the widow's program. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And now tonight we come to the first martyrdom of the church. First open persecution begins here in chapter 6 at the end and on into chapter 7. 
The first martyr, his name you know, is Stephen, Stephanos. In the Greek, his name means a crown. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so Stephen is the first one to wear the martyr's crown. That is after Jesus, of course. But he's the first of the church, the first of the called, the first of the ecclesia to wear the martyr's crown. But we need to understand that Stephen did not become a martyr in his death. He already was a martyr. His martyrdom wasn't seen only in his death. It was perhaps proven ultimately in his death. But G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. He said, those who have died for the truth were not made martyrs by their dying. They died because they were already martyrs. No hurricane of persecution ever creates martyrs. It reveals martyrs. Stephen was a martyr before they stoned him. He was the first martyr to seal his testimony with his blood. A person is only a martyr if they're a witness before their death. And the death just proves out the testimony of their life. We first meet Stephen, and he's not a martyr. In fact, he he seems to be just a man in the fellowship, a guy in the congregation, someone who raised his hand. We need a, a group of people for the food distribution program. Well, I can do that. A man selected among seven total for the widow's food distribution You saw those names back in chapter 6 early on. In verse 8, picking up, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. What was he doing? Flipping plates? Great wonders and signs. Maybe it was faster than anyone at the serving of the burritos. I don't know. what. Great wonders and signs. It tells us something, friends, that he who starts as a servant and is empowered by the Lord often ends up doing far more than simply serving tables. The serving tables is a wonderful place to start. And the Lord is pleased with those who are willing to simply serve. And so we see Stephen here, full of grace and power, performing great signs and wonders among the people. Verse 9, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. I love this next sentence. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Unable to cope. They just couldn't withstand the wisdom of Stephen. Everything they tried, every defense they gave, every argument they threw out, Stephen was ready for He had an answer for. Filled with the Holy Spirit, everything he needed to say, he said. He kept giving this incontrovertible testimony, incontrovertible testimony. I don't think incontrovertible is a word. Feel free to use that if you'd like to. But this amazing testimony because he was full of the Spirit. He was just a table waiter, gang. A servant in the food distribution program, but was full of the Spirit. Hence the power. Hence the grace. In fact, it says he was full of grace and power, that is charis in the Greek, and dunamis. 
And so even though they came at them, they could not cope with His response, with His grace, with His power. Isaiah 54.17 says, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Well, that fits. Stephen was a servant. The heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Well, in verse 11, it says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Listen, how could they stir up the people? One way. When the people don't know the word, they're easily stirred. You want to maintain your calling in this world? You want to have a peace in the walk? Know the word. And you are not easily stirred. But the people were easily stirred up. Oh no, they're coming against our religion. They're coming against our faith. They're coming against Moses. He's saying things against God. Is that really what's happening? And because they were not equipped to deal with this, they were stirred up. They dragged Stephen off in front of the council. Verse 12, before the council, that is the Sanhedrin. In verse 13, they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place, that is the temple, And the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who are sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Notice in verse 14 the contempt with which they called Jesus this Nazarene. In the original language there, it's not a Nazarene, it's not the Nazarene, it's this Nazarene. Even the way it's said, the way it's phrased, indicates what they were saying. We've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus. And yet, Nazarene was the name that Jesus chose for himself. It was the hick town that Jesus chose to be raised in. It was the very place that He desired. You can go all the way back to the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 11, referring to Jesus as the Netzer, the Nazarene, the branch. And leading forward to the very town that He would be raised in, up on a cliff, a bluff, there above the valley of Megiddo, in Israel. A small town, a nothing town. Nathaniel said, does anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course now they're saying the same thing, this Nazarene! But Jesus chose that town long before He would grow up there. It is the name that He chose ahead of time to have nailed above Him on the cross Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And I was thinking about that this week, that Jesus wore it and wore it well. The Nazarene. In the same way that Jesus wore the Jew. Pleased to be a Jew. Happy in this world of persecution against God's people, to be a Jew, pleased to be called a man, the Son of Man. And when you think about how far Jesus stooped to become this Nazarene, it's really quite breathtaking. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, He is not ashamed to call them, speaking of us, brethren, 
Ladies to call you his sisters. And men to call you his brothers. He's not ashamed of that. Wouldn't you think a God would be? I'm not going to call them. I created them. Call them brothers? Are you kidding me? And yet Jesus is not ashamed of that. In Acts chapter 24, Christians will even be referred to as the sect of the Nazarenes. It's meant as a slam, but they would embrace it. Just as Jesus did. And Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high, on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The fact that God, the creator of the cosmos, of the entire universe would stoop down to listen to your prayer or mine is ridiculous. And yet He does. That's our God. The God of love. The God that people truly want to get to know. A God who cares enough about His people to stoop so low. Jesus, this Nazarene. And again, note this verse 15, fixing their gaze on Him. All who were sitting in the council of the Sanhedrin, they saw His face like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Is He glowing? Or is He just so calm, so peaceful, so confident, that it appeared to them as inhuman? He is standing before the Jewish council who called for the crucifixion of Christ. He's standing before the leaders who are now going to question Him for all the trouble that He's causing in Jerusalem. No fear, no anxiety, no worry. Stephen had on his face the glow of glory. Stephen wore the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, Young men, when you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a grin on your lips. And he said, when you teach on hell, your normal face will do just fine. (laughs) And so there's Stephen. His face aglow with glory, with the hope of heaven, with no fear, no anxiety, no worry. How does someone live life like that? Their eyes are fixed on Jesus. I told Les, I guess I'll go ahead and share this with you all. The other night, Cheryl and I watched The Wizard of Oz with the kids. And after it was over, we were watching some of the special features that talked about what happened to the actors and actresses since then. And with almost every one of them, the the major characters, the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and Dorothy and all of them, they had lived to a certain point and then the uh, narrator said, "And, and she passed away at such and such an age. And he passed away at such and such an age. And he passed away at the age of 84. I had the weirdest experience. Sitting there, listening to those death dates... I went, man, that sounds good. And Rick Crawford, and he passed away the age of whatever. 
And it struck me that it is inconsequential when I leave this earth. That's up to Jesus. But when I do, glow of glory, man. The hope of heaven. And I am truly in this place in my life, I'm I'm honest with you all, death doesn't bother me in the least. It really doesn't. I don't have a death wish. I've told you that before. Rick doesn't want to die and leave my family and my church fellowship and my friends. That's not it. It's just that I know. I know the hope that I have. Well, Stephen had that hope. And so, no fear. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest said, Are these things so? What things? Before we even hear Stephen's testimony, before we get into the content of his teaching, we need to understand, and I'm going to break this into three sections for you tonight. Number one, we need to understand the context of Stephen's testimony. The context of his testimony. Then we'll look at the content of his teaching. And finally, we'll look at the conduct of Jesus. The context of his testimony, the content of his teaching, and the conduct of our Lord Jesus. First, the context of his testimony, the accusation against Stephen is threefold. High priest said, are these things so? What things? Back in verse 14, we hear what the accusations are. Number one, the preaching of Jesus. This guy's preaching Jesus. Accusation number one. Leading to accusation number two, the destruction of the temple. And accusation number three, the alteration of the law. Listen to verse 14 again. We have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus, he's preaching Jesus, will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs, the law, which Moses handed down to us. Those are the accusations. When you understand that, the reaction, the response, the teaching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 makes beautiful sense. When you don't understand that, you might read Acts chapter 7 as a history lesson. That's all it is. He just kind of goes back and goes over some history and we don't really know why he did. Maybe he was just buying himself time. I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but well, that's the Bible for you. Until you stop and say, now, why does it say this? Why is this here? Why did Stephen say what he said? Because they accused him of preaching Jesus. They accused him of trying to bring about the destruction of the temple and the alteration of the law. Now, these men were false witnesses. And what a false witness does better than anything else is they twist the truth. They use the truth, but twist it. So the question is, was Stephen really doing this? Was he... Preaching Jesus, well, of course he was. But was he preaching for the benefit of the destruction of the temple and the alteration of the law? Well, yes and no. Not the way they were falsely testifying. Not the way they were trying to take him down. No, but man, when when you preach Jesus, Jesus did say the temple would fall. Jesus did prophesy the destruction of the temple was imminent. Matthew 24, verse 1, Do you not see all these things, Jesus said? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So it's entirely likely that Stephen, preaching Jesus, had said, and Jesus said, don't rely on this. It's going to come down. It's going to be taken apart. So yeah, he was talking about the destruction of the temple, probably, just not the way they were phrasing it. 
And while Stephen, I doubt, said that Jesus would come along and alter the law, Jesus did say that He came to do something with the law that no man could do. Matthew 5.17, He said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. He's not going to alter the law, not in the least. In fact, He said, Nothing in this law is going to disappear. But He did come to fulfill the law. Truly I say, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. But those who stood in opposition to the teachings of Jesus and His martyreo, Stephen, His witness, their religion had become like chains. Isn't it ironic that the primary complainants here were of the synagogue of the freedmen? These were supposed to be freed men. No doubt the synagogue was named after their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And all these centuries later, they still called it the synagogue of the freedmen. Freedmen in the Greek is the libertinos. They're the libertinos. They're the liberated ones. They're the ones set free. I go to the synagogue of liberty, but these men were in chains. And so many of the Jewish people at that time were. Certainly the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the leadership. And many who who were in that circle were bound. They couldn't cope with the true words of Stephen because Stephen spoke of true freedom. And it flew in the face of, of what they understood. Paul would write later, Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But we do. We subject ourselves to slavery. All the time. I'm amazed at how often Jesus has to come back and say, Rick, let it go. Rick, don't bind yourself to that. Rick, it's not that important. You're free in Christ. Live free. And I would go so far as to say there is no such thing as true freedom outside of Christ. The freedom experiment of America without God fails. It doesn't work. There is no freedom without Christ. And by the way, that's how we cope in this world. You see, the freedmen couldn't cope. They couldn't cope with Stephen. They couldn't cope with his words. He just freaked him out. I feel so bad for him. How was your your week, Friedman? Oh, I just I was having a hard time coping. You want to cope in this world? Free in Christ. At seven fifteen this morning, we learned the Obama administration's Iran deal will go through. It's going to happen. Enough senators caved into a disastrous deal for Israel, a disastrous deal for America. It's one of the stupidest deals ever put forward in our country's history. I just want to go on record and say that. It's ridiculous. I don't care what your politics are. A deal that appeases a terrorist state is no deal for America. And yet, one after another, the blinders come on, people cave in, and they're all going for this thing. And I I heard it come on the radio, and I think for a blip, for a split second, I just went, oh no. And then I went, praise God. Because everything is falling into line. 
And he is just a lot. You know, he, as Les was saying to me this afternoon, he turns the king's heart like the watercourses. Does Obama know what he's doing? Some think he's intentional, some think he's not. You know what? The Lord knows what he's doing. Hate to say it, but our president's a puppet. Ultimately, in the hands of the Lord. Because he's accomplishing what he desires to accomplish. How do we cope in this world? How do we cope when there's so much to be afraid of? So many things to worry about. We trust in the Lord. My prayer for you tonight will be Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait, that's your prayer for us tonight? So are we done, Rick? Oh, we're just getting started. Listen, this is critical, truly, for understanding Stephen's teaching. The Jewish hope at this time was in two things. Just two things. The temple and the law. The temple and the law. That's again why these guys are so upset. They feel like Stephen is preaching against the temple and against the law. He's not, but they don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. But the temple was their fortress of security. As with the temple of Solomon, back with the siege of Babylon, the people thought, hey, as long as the temple is standing, we're good. Well, the temple didn't stand, did it? It fell. Not learning anything from history in A.D. 70. After this time, about 30 years or so, the temple would fall again. And yet there would be people in their homes in Jerusalem saying, as long as the temple stands, we're fine. But the temple did not stand, did it? Their fortress of security was no fortress at all. Their hope in the temple was a hopeless hope. By the way, I hope you don't have hope in the bridge. Or in any church. Or in any denomination. Or in any religion. Because like the Jewish temple, it will fall. It is not where we put our hope. Our church. Now I have great hope for the church. The larger church that God is calling out. But I don't have my hope in any particular church any more than the Jews should have had hope in the temple. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4. And you know Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's the prophet who sat up on the Mount of Olives and watched the temple burn to the ground. Wrote the Lamentations. And in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4. The Lord said through the prophet, do not trust in deceptive words. Saying, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Jeremiah 7.12 But go now to my place which was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And if you go to Shiloh today it is a table land but nothing's left. Don't put your trust in that. The Lord told His people through Jeremiah before the Babylonian destruction and Jesus comes along and would say the same thing Not one stone is going to be left on another. Don't put your trust in that. The fortress will fall. Secondly, the law. The law was their fabric of salvation. It was the fabric of their salvation. It was their religious certainty. The law. If we live by the law, we will be saved by the law, by our keeping of the law. The problem is it's a very thin fabric, easily torn. Oh, it's perfect. The law. Absolutely flawless. 
but easily torn because mankind cannot keep it. But it was their religious certainty. And the fear was that by teaching Jesus, Stephen was somehow attempting to fell the fortress and unravel the fabric of their religion. And it ultimately comes down to the age-old argument of religion versus faith. And so the question for us, even today, is will we be religious or will we be found faithful? Do we have faith or do we have religion? Think about that as we go through this. Because when your religion, when your religion is what holds you together, any statement made against your religion is damning. Someone comes against Christianity, and you know it happens all the time. Guess what? Doesn't bother me in the least. Because my faith is not in Christianity, my faith is in Christ, who does not fall. My faith is in the Word of God because it is the spoken Word of God Himself. Flawless. It's not going to fall. But my faith is not in an itty of any kind. And by the way, religion isn't limited to cathedrals and churches and temples and synagogues and mosques. Religion is anything you personally adhere to. The world is filled with religious people. It's hilarious to me how many atheists are truly religious people. I mean, they are. atheism is their religion. How many agnostics have chosen agnosticism as their religion? It's their faith. It's their belief system. That's all a religion is. And if your religion is anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be bound to it and by it. It's faith, not religion, that we're after. After all, who is it that holds the church together? Colossians 1.17 says, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So that's the context. They're afraid that He's preaching against the temple. Oh no. Someone comes out and preaches against the Bridge Christian Fellowship building. Big whoop. Someone threatens to shut us down. Oh no. But it was terrifying to them. And he's preaching against our law. Colossians 1.17 again, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now you cling to Christ, and your strength is sure. So, context. Now the content, number two, of Stephen's testimony, beginning in verse 1. And Stephen said... Hear me, brethren and fathers. He's talking to his own. He's talking to his fellow Jews, his brothers, his fathers. He's doing so quite respectfully right out of the gate. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now again, Stephen is not just launching into a history lesson. What he's doing is unearthing the testimony of faith in the Jewish experience. What do you mean? He's reminding them that when God first met Abraham, it wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't on the Temple Mount. It wasn't in the Temple Courts. It wasn't even in the land of Israel. When God first met Abram, when faith first entered Abraham's heart... 
When he was called Abram, it was when he was living in pagan Mesopotamia as a polytheist. It's a great opening point. You guys are so worried about this, don't you know that our founder started before any of this was here? What did he trust in? Where was his security? What was his fortress? A tent? Verse 4. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. By the way, the Lord never told him to do that. And as part of the precious story of the journey of Abraham into faith, that God said, I want you to leave your home, I want you to leave your land, I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. So, Abraham packs up his family, his father, his brothers, they head out and they stop in Haran, which was not the land that God was going to show him. Why? Because he only had that much faith to start with. Just enough to get him out of his homeland, but he still took his family with him. A lot of people will do that. I'll go to church, but I'm not changing my family behavior. It's kind of uncomfortable to make that radical a change all at once. Okay, the Lord will work with you. And it wasn't until after his father Terah died that Abraham then moved from Haran all the way into the land of Canaan. He finally obeyed. Jesus would put it to you this way. Matthew 10.37 He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It is not easy to say this, but I love Jesus more than David. Not David in the Bible. David, my kid. I love Jesus more than I love Naomi. I love Jesus more than I love Anna Marie or Hayden or Hannah or Corey or Cheryl. And I love them more than anyone on the planet. But Jesus said, love me more. You know what happens when you love Jesus more than anybody else? Your love for everybody else increases tenfold. And the more you love Him, the more you love them. And the more you love Him, the more you find yourself loving people that you didn't even love before. You didn't even like them. But you love Him. And that's just how it works. So Jesus says, love me, and you're going to see something amazing. You will have this sense of love. Well, going on, Stephen now says from, from Haran, there after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot of ground. And yet, when he had no child, he promised that he would give to him a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, God said. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Stephen's command of the Scriptures, by the way, through this is awesome. He he takes us on a journey through Genesis and Exodus. He will even touch on the prophet Amos. How many of you can quote Amos? Stephen does. And he brings up amazing truth. And part of that truth right here is that the faith of Abraham's seed was not cultivated in the land of Israel. It was cultivated in Egypt. God birthed and grew His people outside of the land, not inside of the land. Why? Because faith does not depend on a location. 
It does not depend on a mount or on a temple. It's not a place, it's a person. And the beauty of Jesus is that you can have faith in Him wherever you are. You can have church wherever you are. And you and I, I'm not limited. You're not limited to a specific spot, a specific location. I believe this is what Stephen is revealing to them, saying, look at all this that happened. They were enslaved for 400 years. They went into the land 75 strong. They came out in the millions. God grew His people and not in the land of Israel. God developed their faith, not in the land of Israel, but wandering in the desert for 40 years. 38 to be exact. It's not here that it took place. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. You know what Abraham got out of the deal and passed along to Isaac and Jacob? Circumcision. That, that, was, that was the covenant. Now, if while he was in Mesopotamia, God first appeared to him and said, Abraham, I want to give you circumcision. I don't think he ever would have left home. I wouldn't have. <laughs> Why does Stephen even mention this here? Because circumcision, the very heart of Jewish faith, is a denial of the flesh. That's the whole point. And the point is sharp. (laughs) It is a cutting of the flesh. The very idea was they would be a spiritual nation, not a fleshly nation. Not a nation bound to a particular location or to the temple, but a nation free in the Lord. A spiritual people. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Realize that Moses said that 400 years after they had been circumcising all of their newborn kids, all their newborn baby boys on the eighth day for 400 years in the land of Egypt. God gave it to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his 12 sons. Joseph goes on over into Egypt. We'll get there in just a second. Circumcision going on and on and on and on generationally down the line through every one of these kids all the way through 400 years of slavery. Circumcision, circumcision, circumcision. Don't you think sometime during all that someone said, why are we doing this? (laughs) And... And Moses here reminds them why. It's a picture of cutting away the flesh. God wants to circumcise the heart. That's a spiritual thing. He's not talking open heart surgery. He's talking spiritual circumcision. That's what this is about, Moses says. Stephen now reminds them. It's not about the law and the temple. It is about the circumcision of the heart. Let me remind you what Paul wrote, Philippians 3, verse 3, we are the true circumcision. 
who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and, listen, put no confidence in the flesh. Andrew, I want to tell you this. Put no confidence in the flesh. Do not let the flesh cause you to fear. Your confidence is not in your physical body. We're we're praying for Andrew and, and I have my hand on his arm and I'm like, dude, there's some muscle here. And, and my thought was, honestly, and I don't mean to embarrass you tonight, but my thought was, this is a strong man whose strength in his physical body is being challenged right now. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. That's not what's going to save you. Confidence is in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, Paul said, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, praise the Lord, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is a spiritual thing. Not a physical thing. Not a fleshly thing. And by the way, if anyone needed his flesh to be dealt with, it was Jacob. The covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham, who gave it to Isaac, who gave it to Jacob, and then Jacob to his his descendants. But gang, Jacob, man, that guy needed to have the flesh cut away. If anybody did, that heel catcher, that old schemer. And I love studying through the life of Jacob in Genesis because, man, he was a stinker. And God chose him to be the father of the sons of Israel, of the twelve tribes. He chose a stinker, a heel catcher, and changed his name from heel catcher Jacob to prince of God, Israel. Because that's what God does. He takes the physical, cuts it away, and makes us spiritual. And so he did with Jacob. But the Jewish people here in Stephen's day had not learned the lesson of circumcision. They still were trusting in the flesh. Still were trusting trusting in their physical ability to keep the law, to maintain the temple. So in verse 9, he continues, The patriarchs, that is the twelve boys, the twelve sons of Jacob, became jealous of Joseph. Now note this, the history is amazing. Stephen's got his stuff down. He starts with Abraham, he goes to Isaac, he goes to Jacob, now he goes to Joseph. They became jealous of Joseph and sold him into, into Egypt. Yet, God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. So Stephen now introduces Joseph. Now, the Sanhedrin, these guys know the stories. They know the history. He's not just trying to teach them something they haven't already heard, but he's putting it into context. This is his defense. And he he introduces Joseph. The whole story. Genesis 37. And Stephen is building a brilliant case that the Jewish leaders of his day were just as confused as the patriarchs were in Joseph's day. What do you mean? What he's unearthing here is that the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and did not understand Joseph in the same way that the Sanhedrin was jealous of Jesus and did not understand Jesus. He's pointing out the flaws, the errors, the foibles in Israel's history. 
You see, Joseph is a perfect picture in type of Jesus Christ. To study the life of Joseph is to almost see a a version, if you will, a painting, a, a portrait of the coming Jesus. What Joseph went through? His brothers jealously sold him out. So did the brothers of Jesus. Jealously, they sold him out to the Romans for crucifixion. Joseph entrusted his life to the Lord, no matter how bad it got. He entrusted his life to the Lord, just like Jesus, who Peter said, 1 Peter 2.22, committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Well, that's what Joseph did. That's what Jesus did. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. In raising the issue of Joseph here and the jealousy of the patriarchs, what what Stephen's doing is implying... The same way our forefathers didn't recognize Joseph, you did not recognize Jesus. 